I'm a third year, and I'll be reading scripture tonight. It's from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And tonight we'll talk about how to tame a tongue from what Brian just read a second ago from James 3. Let me pray for us before we do that. Lord Jesus, uh, what we just heard read and what we're about to talk about at least has shown us that words are very, very powerful. We've talked a lot, actually, this fall, of how you use words to change us, to even resurrect us. Not my words, but your words are the powerful ones. And so speak tonight. Um, let us hear from you, even from this passage, even this time together. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. This is what I do for about 35 minutes every week. But what I do for the other five days of the week, Monday through Friday, sometimes on the weekends, is hang out with y'all. And we talk about life, about how you're doing, how the semester's going, about your past or stuff that's going on. And usually what we're talking about has something to do with words. So words that somebody said to you, or words that you said to somebody else and the aftermath and the damage. Sometimes words that you say to yourself and the aftermath and the damage of that. Sometimes we'll talk about words you're, you're saying to God or words you think God is saying to you. And usually it's hard words, hurtful words that have been said to you or you might have said to somebody else that you're still processing from the past, flippant words, careless words, clueless words, arrogant words, dismissive words, shaming words, condescending words, graceless words. And sometimes we actually talk about the lack of words that have been spoken to you too. The dad who never said, I'm proud of you. I'm, I am proud of you. Or the one 
You're beautiful inside. And it was words withheld from you that that's the burden you bear now. So whatever the words that we're talking about are, we know that they're powerful because we really are spending a lot of our lives reacting to them or living in light of them. They're powerful. Words are powerful things. And they're powerful because they change reality. Words change reality. They really do. Obviously, God's words change reality, right? Literally, let there be light, and there is light. But our words change realities too. One of the fun things I get to do as a campus minister uh, is, I think by this point we're up to 27 couples that I've gotten to marry, who usually were sitting in your chairs over the years. And I get to say at the end of those ceremonies, after we've been through it all, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And at that very moment, not just in the eyes of the people here, not just in the eyes of the state, but in the eyes of God, the two people who walk down the aisle are one and leave as one flesh. Words create new realities. They are powerful by design because God speaks powerful words and his words make stuff happen. And we're made, he made us in his image and so he made us to be verbal creatures who speak and when we speak, stuff happens. That's why they're so powerful. So words change reality, and they also steer us. Um, if you look at the metaphors that James uses, verse 3, verse 4, um, he's, he's giving kind of two back-to-back pictures or metaphors of how words, like a rudder on a ship or a bit in the mouth of a horse, steers. These tiny little things steer huge things. Think about a rudder on like a cargo ship tiny little rudder in a massive ship is turned by that little thing. So words steer us. Think about this. The words that a president speaks or a king or a queen speaks steer the course of a nation, right? They're always making speeches. Why? To steer the country. The way you talk in your friend group steers your friend group, right? You know how like one person's comment or one person's contribution can steer the conversation like off the rails or put it back on the rails? One maybe complaining or gossiping roommate becomes lots of complaining kind of negatively focused roommates, right? You know how this goes. Or one person that kind of treats everybody else's lives as kind of consumption for entertainment, now everybody's kind of in on it and you're becoming that kind of person. Superficial, more and more isolated from people because we're just kind of objectifying them. You get what I'm saying? Like, it, it's, our words steer us towards certain destinations. Think, if you think about the past day, just the conversations you've had today to try to make it practical, what have you said today? And what did it make happen? What happened next after you said certain things? How did your words or your comments steer things? In good ways, in positive ways, life-giving ways, healthy ways, or less healthy ways. So God gave our words significance. He bathed them in power. And because they're so powerful, they have to be used with extreme, extreme care. The more powerful something is, the more dangerous its abuse. Powerful. So for example, um, 
A play gun, like a, a kid, like a little boy who's running around with a play gun, not that dangerous because that doesn't have any power. It's not powerful. A little boy with a real gun, catastrophic. It's powerful. A corrupt citizen is one thing. A judge, it's a whole other thing. It's we're in a whole other league because of the power that they have. And James is saying here that your words are one of the most powerful parts about you. Your words, your tongue, he says. It's one of the most powerful things about you. It's more powerful than what you can do with your hands, even violence that you could do with your hands. It's more powerful than what you can accomplish with your brain or your eyes or your ears. Your words, your tongue, it's the most powerful thing about you. So if your tongue gets weaponized, it's the most dangerous thing about you. Think about that personally to you. My tongue, my words, is the most dangerous thing about me. When I get to the end of my life and look back over my life, and if I wonder, like, what damage have I caused, chances are it's going to come out of here. Words withheld, words that never should have left our mouths at God. That's kind of if you stand back from uh, and look at this big picture, what James is saying about this. This is, this is verse 6. It seems like hyperbole. It seems a little bit over the top, but he's really pushing this point big time. Verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire. It's a world, or, or there's a world of evil in it. Among all the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire. Whoa. But think about that. Is that hyperbole? Is he kind of over the top? Or should we consider what he's saying? Think about this. All of the world's hellish problems, all the misery in the world, the death, the dying, the sadness, the conniving, the lying, all of it originated with words. Just a sentence, just whispered. Did God really say? I won't do that again. We're going to come over here. Whispered words, gossip, slander about the character of God that was listened to and embedded in some people's hearts and minds and changed a reality, steered them in a direction they'd never known before, suspicion about God. Words, words. Not violence, not oppression, words. So that's what he means when he says they're a fire set, set on, our words are set on fire by hell, because that's, where did words go wrong? There. Um, this is even harder because words remain. Like once you speak some words, they don't just go away. And this is like, you know, um, if you've had this experience, uh, you've had friends downtown or you've been the one downtown and you had to drink, and you or somebody else uttered the phrase to you, I didn't mean it, I just had too much to drink. Or maybe, outside of that context, I was just in a really bad mood yesterday, I'm sorry I didn't mean it. It still hurts, right? Because everyone in this room knows they did mean it, because it came from somewhere. You know, a, a drunk man's words or a sober man's thoughts. That's true. The only thing drunkenness does is takes away the filter that would have kept that comment inside before but we all know it's real. And that's why you can't say, I take it back. It's out. 
James says it's like a spark that once that spark or once that cigarette butt gets flown into the dry forest, it's all over from there. There's no putting that back in, no putting that genie back in the bottle. That ship has sailed, that horse is out of the barn, as they say. You can't ever unhear a parent saying, You can't ever unhear that first boyfriend or girlfriend saying, I love you. Or God told me we should break up. Isn't that a fun one? You can't ever ever unhear a gossipy friend breadcrumbing some scandalous details about somebody and say, you know why no one wants to live with her, right? It steers you away from her. Now you don't want to live with her. You don't even know what the answer to the question is. You know why nobody wants to live with that guy? You don't even know the answer, but now you don't want to live with him. Words are powerful. Words steer you. They create new realities. They're very, very dangerous for that reason and have tremendous capacity for good. There's a saying, another saying, I guess I'm just saying, um, one of which y'all have probably heard before. They're old man sayings. But there's another old man saying, great things are hard to build and easy to destroy. And that makes sense. Notre Dame Cathedral, years to build. 200 years, that's seven generations of workers. Seven generations of workers. That means your great, 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 great grandfather was working on Notre Dame Cathedral too when you finally finished it. And in one afternoon in April of 2019, it burned down. Great things are hard to build and easy to destroy. How long does it take to earn or a good name? How long does it take to earn respect, to be trusted? It can take years. And how long does it take to lose a good name? One gossipy comment, that's all. Especially if the person doesn't know you. If the person knows you, it might take a few more. But if they don't know you, which is usually where gossip kind of moves the fastest about people we don't know, it can destroy what you've spent a lifetime building and earning, and maybe rightly so. Again, the words that leave your mouth are the most dangerous thing about you and me. So this is the importance and significance of what James is talking about. Now, I had a problem when I was thinking about this passage and how to teach it. Um, the problem. Um, I was like, I don't know how to, why do I need to teach this passage? Because how could I improve on what James has done? Isn't this pretty clear? <laughs> I mean, if you, if, if you weren't listening when Brian was reading the passage, just, I give you permission to go read the passage again while I'm talking. It's as clear as it gets. So I was like, what's there to explain? And then I was like, well, usually kind of take some confusing things in a passage and try to illustrate them or bring them down to earth. And I'm like, what's there to illustrate? He literally gave us five or six easy, low-hanging fruit metaphors. So I'm like, I'm not going to illustrate what he's already illustrated, so I don't know how to do that. And then why do I need to apply this to, and make it relevant to our lives? Because the whole thing, is it not relevant? Is what we've been talking about the past 10 minutes not seem like it's real world, present tense, extremely relevant? So I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, maybe I should just read it slowly and sit down. So I really figured, like, what we need to do with our last few minutes together is just kind of go through this a little bit and, and look down and point out some things as we go down here. 
So let's do that. You start in verse teacher says, not many of you should want to become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Here's the point of that. He's saying the people that God has given spiritual leadership or spiritual authority to, like teaching, you should hold them to higher standards. In a sense, you should put them on a pedestal, not like a pedestal of perfection, but they should be held to a rigorous standard than everybody else. Their words should be more mature than other people's, should be more carefully aimed, should be more nuanced, should be more tender. Jesus himself is giving you permission to have very high expectations of those he's put above you to lead you. And that's Jesus protecting you. We don't have time, and I, mean, I could go off for a long time about the qualifications of those who are in positions of leading you spiritually, shepherding you. There's tons of things that God says, this must be true about this person. Uh, they must be gentle. They must be well thought of by outsiders, by non-Christians. They must be able to teach, bring things down to earth so that they make sense to you. They must be hospitable. They must be gentle. And that's God protecting you. So that's pretty, pretty clear, I guess. James is a teacher, and he's saying teachers will absolutely be held to a higher account and will answer for more before God. Because, like me, I use my mouth for a living. Every day I'm talking, talking, talking. I'm teaching you right now from this. And this is sobering. But the principle holds even if you're not like a teacher or a preacher in a church, because some of you, you know, or your friends know, you, your words carry more weight in this community, in your house. Your words carry more weight. People look up to you, they follow you. You have influence. When you say something in a small group, it steers the conversation a little bit in a different direction, right? Um, and that's like to whom much is given, much is required. Um, and if you're one of those people, or if you have a friend who's one of those people and they're not aware of it yet, um, go encourage them and say, hey, you're a great teacher. And if someone comes up and says that to you, um, be careful with your words and use them well and aim them carefully. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, which is a great way to be careful with our words. Listen long, aim long before you ever fire good words spoken in truth and in love. So I, ho I hope that's at least obvious here. I hope you feel love it takes your growth very efficiently. And he filled they're not allowed to lead you. And the people who do lead you, he's holding to extra high account. But James is a teacher. James was over the entire, all the churches in Jerusalem. James is kind of like the bishop of, of all, the, all the new churches in Jerusalem in the first century. And you would think that he could just wave around his authority and just lecture these people. He's already kind of slapped the church in Jerusalem on the wrist for some stuff like, remember the favoritism stuff about, oh, you're super cool, sit by me. Oh, you sit back there, and I'm not gonna really invite you to anything. Not taking care of the poor, remember? Brothers and sisters in the community who seriously lacked things and nobody was helping them. You would think that James could just kind of light them up, but listen to his pronouns. He says, verse two, we, 
all of us stumble. He's including himself. We who teach will be held to a higher standard. Verse 9, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and we curse human beings made in his image. Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue, presumably not even James. I don't know about you, but this is one of the more convicting passages in this book for me when I read it. I mean, I don't have to think too long about examples of where I've caused damage with my words and my lack of words. But it's easier to hear this message from a man who's including himself in the diagnosis. And he's almost offering it to you and saying, do you ever feel this too? You know, like someone in a small group will explain something and say, do any of of y'all struggle with that? And everyone's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. It makes it easier, right? Somebody went first. Somebody put the cards on the table first. Somebody made it safe. James has made it safe for you to say, I have a problem with my words too. If he was lecturing you, if he was kind of lighting you up and just this was an angry diatribe of conviction, you wouldn't be able to own that because you just, you'd be terrified. But James is saying, y'all, this is a struggle for me. Is it a struggle for anyone else in the room? And everyone's like, uh-huh. So in the, it, humility is the context of, of these kind of things. So what does James do with his humble, gracious speech? Because he's a teacher and he's choosing which words to use as he teaches you even now. What words did he choose? How did he choose to communicate in this particular instance? Well, illustratively, right? That's why this is such an accessible passage is he's like, every other sentence he's like, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like that, it's kind of like a horse or a ship or a fire. So verse three, and I want you to ask the question as I read this, what specific point is he trying to make with these metaphors? Verse three, when we put bits, um, if you don't know, I, I, everyone knows what a bit is, right? Is that piece of metal that's like on the, Laura Williams can tell me what all this means, I don't know, They're like the stuff on the horse's face that has that little piece of metal and they, you pull it this way or you pull it that way and the horse steers. He says in verse three, that was the worst explanation of that in the history. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Verse four, or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, here's the point. Likewise, the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. What he's drawing attention to is the disproportionate impact of the tiniest little thing about us, which is really just driving deeper that point of your tongue probably has the most capacity for good in your life. It will be responsible for the best things that you've done and the worst things that you've done disproportionate impact. Um, What about the dad who every night when he put you to bed said, you are beautiful? Disproportionate impact. That's barely a sentence. Or a mom that always had your back. Little things here and there, disproportionate impact. This little thing right here inside your mouth. But James goes back, he gives us some other illustrations. Verse 11, verse 12, he says, even a little evil in our hearts coming out of our mouths spoils the whole thing. If I told you, hey, 
gallon jug of water, and I only put one drop of poison in it, would you drink it? This is 99.9% .9 water. Just a little bit. It's just a little bit of salmonella on the chicken. Would you eat it? Or some of y'all are from the coast and those tidal pools. I'm like, there's just, it's fresh water. It's just mixed with a little bit of salt water. Would you drink it? That's what James is saying down in the, the, the last paragraph. Can both water and salt water flow from the same spring? He says later, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Even a little bit of corruption spoils the whole thing. Even a little bit of corruption spoils the whole thing, which just puts us back in the same question that we've been asking the whole time. At first, you think he's going to... Like, at first, you think he's going to go teach you because the, um, in, in verse 7 and 8, he's like... I mean, this is kind of interesting, a little science side lesson for him. He's like, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed. It's pretty cool that even back in that day, they were being tamed. Even sea creatures? What were they training them to do? Um, and they have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Did you know the U.S. Navy in World War II trained dolphins how to kill underwater special forces saboteurs who would underwater kind of scuba dive into harbors and put mines on the side of ships and blow them up. So the Navy has trained dolphins with like a special gun that kind of fits over their bottlenose and they ram it into the person and it them. Did you know that, that that exists? Did you know that honeybees were trained how to sniff IEDs in Iraq? And I, they don't have a tongue, but whatever the little thing that they drink nectar with, they trained them how to stick that out when they detected the chemicals that are in IEDs honeybees. Dogs don't just kind of sniff out, you know, drugs, money, the, the smallest little piece of clothing for someone. You can set them loose in a forest and they can find the person. We have trained from bees to dolphins to dogs the most unimaginable things. It's, it blows your mind what we've been able to tame and domesticate and train in animals, but we can't even do it. We haven't been able to hack the human tongue or our words. James is saying the knowledge base that we have applied to being able to domesticate all these other things and exercise dominion over them, we can't even exercise over ourselves. No human being he has been able to tame the tongue. Um, I mean, it's been 2,000 years since he wrote this. Do you think it's changed? Has technology helped us? <laughs> Ooh, no. Just amplified the problem and made it louder. So again, back Tongue, how to tame your tongue. James has pretty much said it's impossible. But then he says something else where he makes it seem like it might be possible. Verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. And then he says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In other words, they're under control. They're self-controlled. So what do we do? Is he saying it's impossible? Is he saying with a lot of elbow grease and a lot of effort and a lot of dedication, maybe it is attainable to tame and domesticate your tongue? 
who James is talking about there is not any of us, and it's not himself. So James is not saying, hey, y'all, I figured it out, little brother, and I'm the bishop of Jerusalem, and um, I figured out how to tame the tongue. Here's five hacks. He says no one can do it except apparently one. So he's talking about Jesus when he says anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. That person is able to keep the whole body in check. We know that Jesus is on James's mind as he writes this letters because every week, every passage, I mean, that we've read, there's some allusion to it. There's some allusion to God's sovereign grace that's changing us, and this is the allusion to his older brother, Jesus, who was ever under control, ever self-controlled, a pure heart that poured out pure speech. Never, ever spoke a hateful word. Never. Never an untruthful word or a twisted, or a spun, or a PR-optimized word. Never wasted a word. Never a half-hearted or half-cocked word that missed its mark. Never a withheld word of encouragement, or grace, or correction. Never once missed an opportunity to share a word he should have shared to say the thing that should have been said in the moment or to not say the thing that shouldn't have been said in that moment. Never a word withheld so that people would be happy with him or he could people please. Never a word shared so that he could people please. Never a word shared so that he could avoid consequences. In fact, his words always brought consequences on him. If you civil rights leader who died a couple of years ago, and he had this famous phrase that he would tell people at any speech he really ever gave. He'd say, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Jesus, his words were always getting him in trouble. Necessary trouble. His words, I mean, I'm fast 33 years of his life, but are what got him on the cross because he wouldn't shut up. Every opportunity, some words, are you the son of God? Pilate asked him, are you saying you're the king or not? Because Rome wants to know. And he just kept his mouth shut. But he talked too much. And he says, you have said I'm a king. His words got him on the cross but he would not use his words to get himself off the cross. Remember when he said to the thief next to him, do you realize how I could call upon right now legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? And he didn't say a word. So God in the flesh uses his words to get himself crucified on a cross, but will not use his words to get himself delivered on the cross. And the reason he used his words to get himself on the cross but wouldn't use his words to get himself off the cross is because if you were going to be cleansed from the way you've used your mouth and your words, 
I have any hope to put the genie back in the bottle from what I've said, to undo the damage of what I've done in the way that it's corrupted me, to, to snuff out this fire of hell that was inside of me and comes outside of me through my words. If that was going to happen, somebody's got to die as a liar and a people pleaser and a manipulator and a con artist and a truth twister and a blasphemer and a mocker and a sarcastic joker that hurts people with his humor. Those are the shoes Jesus steps into, is people who've devastated other people and themselves and God with their tongues. Crucified as a man who never knew how to use his words or did and intentionally used it for bad. So that's why he got on the cross and that's why he stayed on the cross, but he did speak a few words when he was on the cross and it was things like, don't you know I could call a legion of angels right now to deliver me from this? And he didn't. And he said things like, to this, not even a Christian, I mean, this guy had no background. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Because I'm going to bring you with me. I'm going to bring you with me. Where I'm going. And then he uses one of his last breaths to speak a word over the people who were using their words to insult him and mock him and laugh at him and spit on him. Last words, last breaths. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do with their lives, with their words, with their actions, with their desires, with anything. Forgive them. So Jesus' words got himself crucified, but Jesus' words get, wouldn't get himself out of that. And so he died in the place of people who've used their mouths the wrong way, but he didn't just stay dead. He rises up. He rises up. So he dies to cleanse you from the way that we've used our tongues, and he rises up and resurrects to now transform your tongue, to reform your tongue, to recreate the heart in you and the words that come out of that heart through your mouth to other people. So we don't just leave here and say, well, thank God Jesus spoke well on my behalf. Thank God Jesus took the punishment that, of my words. He took the consequences that my words unleashed. It's so much better than that. He rose up again in resurrection power in this springtime of creation to now begin a springtime inside of you that comes outside of you and has everything to do with how you talk. This is what Paul is talking about. Um, this is in Ephesians 4. Listen, just, just one. I could spend hours up here. I will not. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Christian, but only what is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. That's the new filter the Holy Spirit is building in between your heart and your mouth. Nothing gets out of this mouth that'll corrode other people. Nothing gets out of this mouth that's ill-fitting for the occasion or the person or the situation. Nothing gets out of this mouth that doesn't give grace to this particular person or this particular audience who's listening. That's a tamed tongue. And it's God's agenda in your life right now if you belong to him. If you have looked at Jesus and say, for a billion other reasons, but also my words, I needed you to go to the cross and stand in my place, and I needed you to raise up again to give me newness, 
So if, you're, if you are in him, um, what should you do? Let's get really practical as, as we end this. Uh, like, what do you do with this? Because I don't want you to just, okay, I heard the history of what he did for me, and I guess I just repeat that to myself. Well, what do you do with it? If you are alive, and if he's at work in you, you get to participate with his work in you. I've shared this illustration before. I make no apologies for sharing it again. It's my favorite. But the, the movie The King's Speech is the true story. Logue, who is a speech therapist who helped King George, I think the second, Queen Elizabeth's dad, get rid of his stutter. He was not supposed to be king. His older brother king. His older brother abdicated the throne in the midst of World War II. And so the number two in line for the throne, out of nowhere, gets elevated and coronated as king, and he can't get a sentence out and never has been able to because he has a crippling stutter any guttural in the alphabet, he just paralyzes there and just keeps repeating himself. He can't give a speech. His nation's going into war against Germany. He can't give a speech. He can't steer the nation. So they're desperate. They've looked everywhere, and they find Lionel Logue, the speech therapist, and Lionel begins the painstaking process and the humiliation and the humbling process of a king meeting with a therapist to do silly little exercises like practicing getting past a guttural like a G or an F or a C and getting on to the next word. Little tiny microscopic work on his speech. It's grueling, it's painstaking, it's day in, day out, it's effort intensive. But over time as they develop a relationship and the king begins to trust Lionel and begins to see change happening through this painstaking the king starts to talk more and more like Lionel who doesn't have a stutter. And Lionel's with him all the way to the end, and it, the, the movie ends with the king giving what you can go listen to online or on YouTube, one of the first speeches that he gave with Lionel Logue in the room, nose to nose with him, helping him get over every little stutter as he delivered the address on BBC, announcing that Britain was entering the war against Germany, and he rallied a nation. That's the spirit of the resurrected Jesus that has been poured into the hearts of all who know him. He's your speech therapist. Will you yield to him? Will you let him do therapy with you? Will you let him work on the way you talk about other people's lives in your living room? Will you let him conquer the gossip? Will you let him go to people and ask clarifying questions instead of assuming details? Uh, will you let him teach you to speak words of grace that edify those? that fit the occasion. You can tell them tonight, I want that. I want you. I want you to help me. And he will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that is the promise that you give. You don't just die for us and send us on our way, but you raised up again to new life that we might be made like you. There will come a day where we will meet you and see you again and we will talk like you talk when we see you. Our mouths will be fully redeemed, recreated and renewed and we will all talk and think and desire like you yourself in the new heavens and the new earth. You begin the work now, continue the work, teach us how to yield to you. Help us to pay attention to the way that we use our words even tonight. In your name, 